Philip Norman has written the reluctant Beatle George Harrison. Philip is 80 years old now. He's a novelist and a playwright, but best known for his biographies of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Buddy Holly, Elton John. It'd be difficult to find a writer who's written more in-depth about people and music. Studies of John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton, James Brown, Little Richard, The Beach Boys, Fleetwood Mac, Rod Stewart, Jimi Hendrix and the Everly Brothers. Not to mention Elizabeth Taylor, P.G. Woodhouse and Colonel Gaddafi. Philip Norman's first book, Shout! The True Story of the Beatles sold more than a million copies. The New York Times described it as the definitive biography, even if Paul McCartney didn't like it much. Hello, Philip. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. This is a big, comprehensive book, so necessarily we're skimming across the surface. A whole lot of things to ask you. The Beatles mightn't have been the Beatles even without George Harrison. Yes, there's a lot George didn't get credit for, including a point when the then quarry men, as John Lennon, Paul McCartney's group that George joined, um, were called at the time, um, were just sort of giving up, really. George was determined to keep them together and managed to do that uh, by taking them into this little club called the Casbah on the outskirts of Liverpool, um, where they really sort of settled down and sort of solidified into the Beatles. Um, but there's so much that George doesn't get credit for, and that that's that probably is the first. And even at that initial meeting with the legendary producer George Martin, that meeting wasn't going too well until uh, George stepped in and said something cheeky. Well, that is what the legend says. George said something very cheeky, and this rather sort of formal, uh, gentlemanly record producer, who was very unlike most record producers then, was charmed and tickled. In fact, George also had a, a, a gift for saying absolutely the wrong thing at the wrong moment. <laughs> he had a very acid tongue. Now, any other producer of that era, very egotistical, you know, godlike figures that they were, would probably have walked out. Um, fortunately for the, history, the future of Western culture, George Martin laughed, but it wasn't, no, it wasn't a bit of spontaneous cheek. It was a piece of absolute, utter rudeness. And even John Lennon curling up in embarrassment. <laughs> it's funny how that worked, isn't it? I mean, to say to somebody, I don't like your tie, that's a terrible introduction. Um, so much, Philip, so much I didn't know in this book. George Harrison also started the career of the Rolling Stones. Uh, that's right, because... Um, George was actually sitting in on a, a talent contest next to the man who was going to go to his grave uh, as the man who turned the Beatles down for Decca Records, um, which they did a very a very poor audition for. Um, and instead of them, Brian Poole and the Tremolos were chosen for Decca Records. Uh, but this man, Dick Rowe, um, said to George, you know, what's going to be the next big thing? And George said, oh, you want to go down to Twickenham, Twickenham in outer London, uh, there's this band called the Rolling Stones play in a place called the Railway Hotel. Uh, and when George looked around, the man had disappeared. He'd gone straight away. Dick Rose signed, redeemed himself by signing the Stones <laughs> after having turned down the Beatles. So Dick Rowe at Decca Records, he was the one who said, you know, guitar groups are on the way out. 
Was that the same gentleman? Well, yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, they'd never really been in. I mean, there was only one guitar. It was thought uh, the British uh, Isles could stand only one guitar group. That was the Shadows, who were very house trained, you know, and did neat little dances and wore suits and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it was really that, you know, that that we've got the Shadows. Who needs anyone else? Particularly these characters who have funny hair and jump around, you know, and, and don't look serious. Rock rock musicians in groups were supposed to look very, very serious. And this lot was sort of larking and joking all the time. Um, but that has gone down into history as one of the great misprophecies of all time, yes. It has. August 1963, 60 years ago, you're writing about the early popularity of the Beatles, admiration for them as well, but suddenly turning into frenzy. What did that, what was that switch that was flicked, as you put it? It was really a sort of, firstly, it was the sound of very, very young women um, making a noise that had nothing to do with the music, really. This was got George's goat terribly, actually. George, I call the reluctant Beatle. He wasn't a reluctant musician. He was a very, very dedicated musician. He hated it when this awful wailing started, where, you know, they couldn't hear themselves and the the audience couldn't hear the music. it was it was just uh, wait it was like a sort of waiting a tidal wave of adolescent emotion wa- waiting to break there'd been earlier examples there'd been frank sinatra in the 1940s in america and uh, um, even further back than that you know rudy valley in the 1930s and elvis presley of course but nothing like this and the beatles themselves very soon stopped trying really on stage because they couldn't be heard up up until then, um, the the hysteria, the pop hysteria, had been so fairly evenly divided between the sexes. Um, this was predominantly very young um, women. The reluctant Beatle George Harrison and Philip Norman is talking to us. The Beatles, as you tell it, Philip, were lucky twice, actually. I mean, the nation uh, was looking for a tonic after the dreary Profumo scandal in the UK. The nation seemed depressed and the tabloids decided to befriend the Beatles because they were friendly, as you've been alluding to, having fun. And then America was looking for a tonic after the shooting of JFK and Americans decided to fall in love with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Would you call that luck? They, the, the, what the Beatles did was they went to the um, an amazingly right destination by all the wrong routes. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the last thing they should have done was to go and sort of waste their time in Hamburg's red light district, you know, in the early, very early 60s. Um, it all added up in the end to the, to the right thing to do, to what their great uh, published press officer, Derek Taylor, um, called the 20th century's greatest romance. Um, and all sorts of factors uh, were, were part of this. Uh, America, up until that point, had never acknowledged any competition from overseas in popular music. And in Britain, uh, pop hits had tended to be either direct imports from America or people covering American hits, like the, you know, the, the, from the Brill Building, places like that in New York. Suddenly, all that was shaken by this awful blow to the American psyche, which was the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. And when the Beatles uh, arrived, it was not only that they made a, a very, very wonderful new sort of energetic sound, which really didn't exist by then in pop music. They also looked so bizarre 
but they had this charm and the charm is what lives in their music to this day you know a, a little child can you can play a beetle record to and they are instantly captivated it was the charm really as much as the music are you saying that that charm developed in part in those clubs in germany well that also what what developed more importantly was the stamina you know the liverpudlians as a as a you know as a, a breed are very very tough anyway uh, and you had to be so tough to be a beetle you know the, their body clocks were ruined forever you know they had day for night for the rest of their lives because of the ridiculous schedule that they had to keep and also um there was also the very, very strong belief that they believed as much as anyone that this was not going to last, that this was going to be over in a few couple of years or even months, and they had to get what, what they could while they could. And so they did this ridiculous schedule, you know, of touring and making albums and releasing singles because their manager, Brian Epstein, and George Martin, their producer, and they believed this was they had to get, get it while it was going. And it was, but it was Hamburg that gave them this real the stamina to play all night which of course they didn't have to play all night eventually but they had to be around they had to be around all night um and tough liverpudlians hardened in the red light district in both both senses uh, of hamburg um was the actually the right preparation for that so the beatles were always braced for it not to last you know right up to the end when it was quite everybody really thought was this was not going to be over they thought it could be over at any moment um and that was why john lennon and paul mccartney put her put their songs around so many other performers because they thought they'd have to end up as jobbing songwriters nobody wanted to hear them sing anymore isn't that amazing looking back i mean with the benefit of hindsight mm-hmm. uh meanwhile george harrison was being neglected but but also, Philip, he wasn't writing really good songs yet uh, in the middle of Beatlemania. I wonder why not. Well, one of the reasons, I mean, that you could not sort of um, really define Lennon-McCartney um, output. It was so amazingly abundant, and they could write a couple of songs in the back of a bus on the way to a gig. <laughs> And they, but they also had each other. They had this kind of natural symbiosis um, where one could start a song and the other one could finish it. When they were writing together, they wrote separately later on, but would still collaborate on things later on. But George only had George. And it was very intimidating. I think you say a version of this. He came to the fore, really, when Lennon and McCartney had started kind of writing brilliant little bits and pieces here and there without the cohesion that had been there beforehand. Would you agree with that? Well, um, he, he never really, he, he had very little confidence, actually. And he, he for instance, you know, the, his great contribution that is overlooked is that, is that the absolutely unique um, and original intros and solos that he played on all the Beatles, you know, tracks that everybody now remembers and can sing by heart. George was absolutely integral to that. He would have to come up with those little guitar breaks in in minutes when they came into the studio with something you know they were going to record and george would have to come up with the, you know, the licks and he did that absolutely brilliantly and he really it was really only at the very end during the actual beatles breakup that he's really found his form because even songs that 
were later to be hailed as masterpieces, and he'd, he'd almost despaired of getting them onto Beatles albums. The Reluctant Beatle. And that was on both sides. John Lennon was originally against George Harrison joining the Beatles, and I think George was in two minds, uh, as implied by your title. Why the reluctance, please, from both of them? Well, in John's case, um, John was two years older than, than George. Um, George was only really just about 14 when he when Paul suggested he should join because he had a wonderful guitar. His parents were, had, were very, you know, not, not affluent by any means. His dad was a bus driver. But they bought George this absolutely wonderful cutaway cello-style guitar when almost no one in what used to be called skiffle groups had a beautiful instrument like that. John was more in, keen in, on getting the guitar into the band than George. Um, but John used to say, who is that bloody kid who's always hanging around? John was an art student by then, very grown up, of course. George was still at school and, and really looked at little sticky out ears. His guitar was very big, really, for him. Um, and he felt that John never really moderated that uh, opinion of the bloody kid actually until they started taking lsd which was a social uh, activity you had to do it with someone to look after you and you looked after them and that was really the first time he felt any closeness to george was when they were doing lsd your descriptions philip of the early years as they all got to know one another and ringo joined the band and you've got to feel sorry for pete best who could have been the best looking beetle um your descriptions, we consider these to be unruly times with unsafe streets and rising crime, but goodness me, the, the risks you ran as a musician in the clubs of Liverpool and, to a lesser extent, Hamburg back then, flick knives, knuckle dusters, cudgels and guns you could buy that fired tear gas, it was all on. Tear so gas pistols. Tear, tear gas, gas pistols. Yeah. But they had a sort of, uh, they were looked after. Terrible fights used to break out, you know, using tear gas, pistols and knuckle dusters and coshes. And the club owner would weigh in. He had a, his name was Bruno Koshmida. He had a, an antique chair leg uh, stuffed down his trouser leg, which he would take out and he start belting his customers with that. Um, but they were somehow immune from that. Even when John used to absolutely most, John's behavior in Hamburg, I mean, made Johnny rotten. It, it, with the punks, I mean, look pale in comparison. Um, things that John did in Hamburg, I haven't been able to put in any of the books I've written so far, so disgusting. Um, but the Beatles somehow had this kind of protection. A man, uh, the, the uh, a particular bouncer called Horst Fascher, uh, used to watch their backs, really, and protect them. He'd actually been a, a, a boxer who once killed an opponent in a street fight accidentally sure. um, and horse fashion <clears throat> had their backs and all that horse really asked in return was to be able to get up and do a number with the beatles now and then which he which he used to do it's an amazing history that pre-beatlemania history that not everybody knows about but you know all about the contradictions so george was always resentful at his role in the beatles uh, the, he was um, he was from the wrong side of the tracks, as it were, um, although so was Ringo. Did that explain the contradictions in his personality, his powerful spiritual beliefs, but at the same time, you know, songs about paying too much tax? And, and I remember the infamous lyric from the song, I've Got My Mind Set On You. I remember hearing that song for the first time and being aghast. Yes, need lots of spending money. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> well, he did at the time, actually. He was 
going broke, he wrote the first uh, pop song complaining about income tax. Um, but he also made an album uh, railing against what he called the material world. Um, George could rise to the height of nobility, as he did with his concert for Bangladesh, charity concert for Bangladesh, which was the first real demonstration that pop musicians ha had a heart and a soul and weren't just motivated by greed and vanity. And that was an amazing achievement and a template for all the charity events that came after. Um, but at the same time, George could descend to the level of um, breaking the first law of the Beatles, which is you don't sleep with another Beatles wife. And that's what George did with Ringo's first wife, Maureen. Uh, it's very funny that uh, you talk about the spiritual being side of him, but actually uh, his uh, first wife, Patty Boyd, who was a really wonderful woman, uh, very, very funny, but not at all, still really in love with George, I think. She said that, that he was the only person she ever knew who got more paranoid and prickly after he learned to meditate. It's usually supposed to be the other way around, as we know. So er everything about George is a contradiction. Um, and that one of the reasons that I found his, his character sort of fascinating to deal with, although not always very lovable. Not always very lovable. Um, Patty Boyd Harrison, you've talked about the woman immortalised in the song Layla and other songs, and the wife of both Clapton and Harrison. Is it true she once asked George's assistant what's he got his hands in today, the prayer beds or the prayer beads or the cocaine? And it was, yes, what's he got his hands in today, the cocaine or the or the prayer beads? Because he could switch in a moment from, you know, chanting to uh, wanting to do coke and get drunk and have gossip and parties. And then he would switch back just as suddenly to the prayer beads. And you never knew when it was going to happen, whether these switches were going to happen. Um, and it, was, it made life rather sort of awkward. Um, but you know, he could be very gossipy, very normal, very worldly, or very, very pious. And, you know, rather, you know, he wanted so much to be a spiritual being, as how Patty puts it. It made him very bad tempered. <laughs> Isn't that such a dichotomy? That song we talked about, I Got My Mind Set On You, that'll go down in history. As I mean, in terms of love songs, it's going to take money. It's going to take a whole lot of spending money. It's a terrible thing to say in a love song, isn't it, really? Well, it just happened to come out um, at a time when uh, George was suddenly very, very short of money. Yeah. Um, he, he'd, he'd been managed after the Beatles. His manager had continued to be Alan Klein. He was a dreadful uh, uh, double-dyed thief uh, and, and con man whom John decided would be the Beatles manager after Brian Epstein. Um, and George was tied to Alan Klein for a while. Then he got another business manager called Dennis O'Brien, who was his partner in a film company, Handmade Film. So George had another side to him, was a film producer, and he was lots of other things apart from being a musician. He was a good record producer. He was a huge follower of Formula One racing. Um, he was fanatical about playing the ukulele. Lots of sides to George. Um, but in this case, um, this man, Dennis O'Brien, unbeknownst to George, who was very keen on money, but never read any document he was ever given to sign, unfortunately. George found himself liable for um, the, the, the guarantees, the various films made by the film company, which he, he was supposed to have signed in tandem with De Dennis O'Brien, but only he had signed and he was responsible for all of the potential debt. I know. 
The stories in this book, the reluctant Beatle George Harrison, Philip Norman, is talking to us. So you also point out the contrast between the short shelf life of the Beatles as a a unit playing live on stage compared with the Rolling Stones who are still going and a lot of other bands from the period actually. George played a role in that too. I mean, and if he hadn't, because he he didn't really like the playing live and if he hadn't, we mightn't have had the full magnificence of the later albums. What do you think? Well, it was John as well. John was very got very tired of being a Beatle. It wasn't just playing live, being a Beatle. You had to play this part. You had to be smiley and charming and lovely, uh, however uncomfortable or inconvenienced you were, um, how, however many boring people you had to meet. You know, John was a natural rebel and really was rebelling against that from a very early stage. But then, of course... It was the, really the last tour, the 1966 tour, that nobody realised would be the last tour, where, first of all, um, they, they got into trouble in uh, uh, they got in trouble in Tokyo, in Japan, and then in Manila, because they were said to have uh, insulted the First Lady, Imelda Marcos, of the Philippines. And after that, John's little quote about Beatles being more popular than Jesus, of course, started uh, the Ku Klux Klan in revolt in the southern states of America against burning Beatles records instead of crosses. Um, so that really, at that point, it was quite obvious that even Paul, who was the one who most liked being a Beatle and felt the most commitment as a performer, even he thought it, it had gone far enough. But George, yes, was, you know, was the quote, well, that's it, I'm not a Beatle anymore. Although you didn't just stop being a Beatle anymore, you could stop being a a Jesuit, you know, or, um, or, a, or, or a Japanese samurai. You just don't stop doing that, that sort of thing. When they did sort of stop, though, uh, post-Beatles, we were aware of his projects, but he was still ex-Beatle number three in importance. Was that fair? Because well, arguably he tried more than John and Paul did to make the world a better place, and he experimented more. You've talked about some of it, whether it was his mateship with Monty Python or he had that close friendship with the Formula One driver, Jackie Stewart. He wrote a song about um, you know, driving fast and so on. He did a whole lot more, or seemed to, in different areas than John or Paul. He did. I mean, John was more than a musician. He was a, a, a poet and an artist, painter, many things connected with art. But George had so many diverse interests with a film company. He was a very good record producer. Um, he turned into a film producer as well. He had his own record label. He had lots and lots of, you know, different strands to him. Um, but what it really, what really happened was that he had what I call, you know, an unextinguishable, unextinguishable last laugh at the expense of John and Paul, because that first solo album by George, which contained so many songs that had not been allowed onto Beatle albums, that absolutely, out, you know, hugely outsold the debut albums of both John and Paul, and still does to this day. It is an unextinguishable last laugh. Um, and suddenly he was the number one Beatle. People were saying in 1970, what, what are the 70s going to be like in music? You know, This looked like it would be like George had just shown them, it seemed. I know. It was, it was a real turnaround. So arguably he was the pioneer of world music. And he introduced a large portion of humanity to Eastern thought and, as you say, set the stage for music stars to raise money for social causes. There is so 
much to him. When he died, you were pretty hard on him in an obit, uh, a miserable git and a serial philanderer. Uh, you have mellowed in your opinion of him, haven't you? You say this in the book. Well, those two uh, expressions you've just mentioned were not wholly inaccurate. <laughs> uh, he could be a miserable git and he was a serial philanderer. But really, it was what I left out, I think, because when he died in 2001, um, everything I knew about him had gone into my book Shout about the Beatles. Um, and I hadn't really looked deeply into George since then. And Shout really ended with, with the breakup of the Beatles. I really had to write uh, the biography of, of John and then Paul and then George's best friend, Eric Clapton, to see what I really had, had missed out about George. And uh, yes, that I'm afraid that you know is, is a blot that uh, obituary. Uh, it's it, Unfortunately, I, I didn't realise it was rather like a sort of a vampire. Um, it was undead on the internet for all those years. The reluctant Beatle, George Harrison, Philip Norman, is with us. Uh, just by the by, the whole notion which we've heard in the years since of subconscious plagiarism, my sweet lord, he's so fine, the, the chiffon song that he borrowed from, you don't think that was deliberate plagiarism, do you? And yet he'd always been careful about copying other people's music. He'd been warned by his studio band, you tell us, that, that the two songs sounded the same, warned that the songs sounded similar. What do you think about that looking back in terms of... Because they were, they were so similar, those two songs. Well, it was it was really the main riff that was very similar. And, of course, there are many, many exam other examples of that, but far worse sort of conscious or unconscious plagiarism throughout popular music. George had been aware of it because he'd sort of, uh, um, he'd, he'd got his friend Billy Preston to do a version of it on an album before um, My Sweet Lord came out. Billy Preston did a kind of soul version of it. It didn't really sound the same at all as George's eventual version. So that was like his, him sort of sticking his elbow into the bathwater to see if, if there was any trouble, and there wasn't any trouble over that. And uh, But unfortunately then, of course, the, the trouble came from a, a very tiny music publisher that had published, had the rights to this song by the Chiffons in 1963. But it's really just the riff, as he kept saying, it's, you know, there's lots more to the song than just the riff and the whole conception of the song it's a it's an amazing song because it's a it's an anthem for any faith for any creed and so it is still cherished you know yeah. if, what he eventually yeah. did um first of all it, it, when it when it's the trouble started he was still managed by alan klein who thought he could take care of it by just buying off the plaintiff but by the end uh, Al, he'd, he'd sacked Alan Klein, so Alan Klein was advising the plaintiffs against him and stirring up trouble. So it went on and on. But it, actually, a court did say that um, it was unconscious plagiarism. And uh, uh, he, he was always, if, if he wasn't paranoid already, he was always paranoid about that in, in the future. Eventually, what he did was he, he ended up with the rights to He's So Fine, so he could plagiarize it as much as he wanted. <laughs> That's right, he could plagiarise his own songs. I'm not sure he comes across he comes across as, as a remarkable, more remarkable than we remember in your book, with great qualities and talents. I'm not sure he comes across as likable, even so. What do you think? 
a lot of people remember him as very likable and very, very sweet. Patty Boyd said he was absolutely sweetness itself till he learned to meditate. But he could be very, he had a terribly acid tongue, always. He had a gift for saying the wrong thing at the, exactly the wrong moment. Um, but then again, he could be very tactful and very, you know, subtle. Towards the end of his life, he had a horrifying time, doesn't, didn't he? He was nearly assassinated. There were terrible money troubles, which you've mentioned, and then there was death. Well, the, the closing chapters are very, yes, very tragic. Um, first of all, he, he, he was diagnosed with cancer, which seemed to have gone into remission. Um, then he was attacked uh, in late one night at Friar Park uh, uh, in a rather sort of horrifying replay of the assassination of John Lennon. That is a Beatles fan who thinks he's betrayed in some way the ideals of the Beatles and feels there are sort of divine mission to take revenge on him. And this character stabbed him 40 times, very near, sometimes very near the heart. It was dreadful, dreadful injuries that he suffered. He just about got over that when the cancer came back, and there really wasn't any remission this time, unfortunately. I know, it's a shocking story. Monty Python's Eric Idle remembers he was always saying, don't forget you're going to die. From about the time I knew him, he was preparing to die. Would you concur with that? That was the spiritual side of him somehow, you know, informing him of that. Again, what what's sort of been overlooked in praises of George's too short life uh, was how often he was very ill, um, even as small, quite a young kid. He, he was suffering from nephritis, a very nasty complaint, in hospital for a long time. And in fact, it was, that was when he decided he wanted to have a guitar. And, uh, you know, to, uh, on the eve of the Beatles' appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show in America in 1964, they're going to be playing to 72 million people. So many people are watching that the police in five boroughs of New York report no crime because everybody is indoors, including the criminals, watching the Beatles. George develops a strep throat and has to play at that, on that historic occasion with a temperature of 104. He always had, he, and he, he had later on, he, you know, he was, his life was punctuated by rather sudden and dramatic illness. And that gave him this, yes, this rather fatalistic idea that, you know, might as well face it, you've got to go sometime. You've got to go sometime. What do you think of the song Now and Then Before We Go? I saw a review in Slate magazine that said the John Lennon of Now and Then can't argue or disagree, can't push back or add ideas of his own. He's just propped up long enough to give the appearance of approval and then he goes back in the box. I think it's terrible, absolutely terrible. It doesn't sound like the Beatles. It doesn't sound like John Lennon. Um, it sounds a bit like a sort of outtake from the Electric Light Orchestra in the mid-70s of Beatles pastichists. Um, and actually, George, so it was part of this cassette tape that Yoko handed to Paul McCartney after John's death, of, of demos John had made in the Cota building when he was supposedly retired from the, the music. He wasn't retired at all. But even then, there were, uh, during the, the, the release of the Beatles anthology, the series, series of albums, um, two, two tracks by John uh, were, with, with overdub backing by the others, were, were released. George 
said this is just not good enough and George was right. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for the book and for the chat, Philip. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye.